Well, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series today, and it's called One-Liners. And yeah, you could say one-liners, you know, it seems, sounds kind of basic. And to some degree, it's meant to be a little basic. It's meant to, to go into some of those more basic truths of God's Word. And so we're going to do seven of these one-liners. And uh, I think the important thing here is some of these concepts you may be like, yeah, 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 I know that. But I'm telling you this, every time you, know, you read the Bible or, or you begin to talk about these things, there's always going to be something you didn't know or hadn't thought about. Every week as I come here and I'm talking to people and hearing the story or hearing like maybe a, a passage from the Bible they read, they'll tell it to me in a way I never thought before. And so uh, keep your minds open, your hearts open. I believe this is going to be a really neat series, and hopefully you're going to remember some of these one-liners, and these one-liners will come to help you uh, when, you know, you're facing something and your brain's all scrambled and you just don't know what to think, but you got that one-liner, and that one-liner just brings a whole bunch of scriptures and connects them all for you. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, as we open up the Word of God today, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive it, and that you would speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first time I heard our first one-liner was when I was in, um, in, uh, in college, uh, in university. Uh, part of the how I was able to, to get some scholarship money, some extra money for it, was I joined the forensics team, and they, they paid you to do that. So we were doing a mock debate, and I can't, you know, for the life of me, I can't remember what the topic was. But uh, I, was the I was the against, the antagonist, and then the, the, the pro was uh, a classmate of mine named Missy. Uh, she was from Montana and spent some of her childhood on a Christian commune, didn't, didn't like stay there the whole time, but it was like a very, um, you know, very conservative commune. And she knew so many one-liners. It was like most of the one-liners you're going to hear probably probably originated from her i just don't remember it but this one i do and we were debating something i remember her point that she was trying to make was god is god and i am not and i just kind of look at her like well you know i what if i just argue against the existence of god right there 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 is no god and she's like she looks at me with a little smug smile and she goes god is god and you are not <laughs> And so even though I was, uh, I was able to win the debate, I definitely had lost in the court of public opinion. But I've often gone back to that statement. It's kind of a statement that can solve and heal a lot of things when you're confused, when you've come to the end of what you can grasp or what you can kind of perceive. You come back to the sense of, you know what? God is God and I am not. Now some of you may say, it seems very, that seems almost too basic. That, that, that is basic for basics. But the fact of the matter is some of the Bible scriptures that I'm going to be reading today will tell you and show you that this is actually a very deep concept that the Bible reinforces over and over and over. Now first of all, the Bible never argues for the existence of God. It begins with kind of this simple, majestic sentence. In fact, if we go to the next slide real quick, it begins with this sentence of, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That there is a God who created all things. 
<clears throat> then if you look at Proverbs 1, 7, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Note the two beginnings here. That in the beginning God created and the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom rests in the fear and understanding of the Lord. So the fact that we're even having this conversation, the fact that we're even talking about this, the fact that we even care about this, hopefully you do, is due to the fact that in the beginning God created that there is a God. In Psalms 14.1, the Bible also proclaims that those who deny God, particularly denying God's existence, are foolish or fools. Now why? Why does the Bible say this? Some of this is backed up by Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter one. This is one of our primary scriptures this morning. Uh, it'll be on the screen. And Paul writes this at the end of his first chapter. He's just kind of written a whole bunch of stuff. And now he kind of summarizes everything he says with this. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. Now, some of you may say, I don't know if God has necessarily made his existence plain to me. Well, hopefully by the end of this message, it will become a little more plainer because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, the Bible is very honest to say God is invisible. It, he is invisible. We walk not by sight, not by what we see, but by faith, but why, by what we see with a different set of eyes the eyes of our spirits, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our reason and the eyes of our mind. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So we can find God and understand God and learn about God from what has been made, from creation, from what we can experience and see. And then Paul leaves this final clause, which is, which is really a powerful clause, so that men and women are without excuse. I've met many people, well, if they're, especially atheists. Well, if I die and there's a God, boy, me and him are really going to have a talking to. He could have really shown himself a little bit better. Well, the Bible says there's not going to be any excuses once we are in that moment. Uh, a few years ago, I had a radio show uh, that was sponsored here by the church. Uh, we let it go, but I had it for about four years, and uh, it was always a bucket list of mine to do it, and I, I think it, it went very well during the four years uh, it was there. We didn't feel called to you know, keep it going, but in the years we kept it going, I had some very interesting guests, and probably my most fascinating guest, and, and maybe... My, my biggest national guest was a man by the name of Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, who is the founder of Reasons to Believe. Uh, he was an astronomer and an astrophysicist uh, who was an atheist, and through his studies and through his pursuit of the stars, uh, he became uh, not only a Christian, but a very on-fire evangelist uh, for Christianity. And so when we had our radio show uh, back in 2018, you know, I flat out said, okay, I'm going to play the role of diehard, dogged, 
it's science and reason and biology and non-theistic evolution. I'm going to play that role because I know their arguments so well. I'm going to play this, and, and we're just kind of kind of dissect this together. And he kind of made, you know, five at least five points, really even more, that really stuck with me and really kind of shook. I'm like, wow, you just don't hear that on the news. You just don't hear this. You just don't read this in what they're taught in the schools and things like that. But he said, no, these are things that are not popular, but these, these things I'm telling you are fact. They're truth. Whereas a lot of the other side of the argument is a lot of theory and supposition. The first thing he said was the fossil record does not by any measure of the imagination prove evolution. He says, we kind of think, well, the fossil record proves evolution. He goes, I, I, I don't know how to say it so often. I have studied this. I have been with people who have studied this. I have best friends who know this. And they will all tell you the same thing. There's nothing and then an explosion of life. There's that explosion of life and then another explosion of life. And they all seem to come at these epic periods. And so if you look at uh, you know, things like uh, you know, biological archaeology and things like that, they'll kind of, you know, they've separated these periods where in just a short amount of time, a whole bunch of life shows up in the fossil record. He said, well, this completely blows away evolution because evolution is more of a gradual building by building by building where instead we have these huge points that are organized. I said, okay, that's a good one. Yeah, you're right. I never heard that one. He said the second one is, comes from physics. He's an astrophysicist. He says, anyone who knows the second law of thermodynamics, and I said, I'm sorry, I do not know that. So he explained it to me. He said that in a closed system such as our universe, energy tends to move from order to disorder. Without additional energy or input, everything in the universe moves from complexity to simplicity. And I went, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he goes, think of it this way. Clocks, if you don't keep winding it, will run down. I looked at him and said, what about a battery? He goes, ah, you thought you got me. I said, I did get you, didn't I? Batteries, if are not changed, the clock will run down. Clothes will wear out. Our bodies grow old, et cetera, et cetera. Have you ever seen some of those apocalyptic TV shows? What happens to the city after a while if we don't maintain it? The earth just seems to take it over again, right? It just breaks down and begins decaying because the universe is running down. Our sun is burning out. Our natural resources are not being renewed. The universe as it is will not last, last forever. I, if we were to just let the universe go, God will intervene before then, but if we just let the universe go, it will eventually at some point all be motionless and dark and there will be nothing. You know, so just this sense of the law of thermodynamics does not support simplicity to complexity, but complexity to simplicity. I hope you understood that because it took me a while to wrap my brain around it. The third thing he said was the laws of probability. This one was a little better. He said George Wald out of Harvard University, who's an astronomer, said that if you rework just the evolution we can see, you know, adaptation and cell changes, he said, if you rerun the clock back, he said, even if it were possible, he said, I'm not saying it's possible, but even if it were possible, it would take about 10 billion years through electrostatic 
uh, uh, charging of amino acids to possibly, possibly create a living cell. He said it'd take closer to 20 trillion years to have any sort of complex living animal or being or human. I said, wow, I, that's pretty cool that somebody can do that kind of math. And Dr. Ross looked at me and he said, well, Tom, here's the thing. He goes, I don't believe it, but even if you believe what the scientists will tell you, that the earth is only four billion years old. He says, and for the first two billion, it was just nothing but water and rock. There's not enough time for evolution to have brought what we have here today. He goes, this is the dirty secret they don't talk about. There's simply not enough time for life to have evolved without God. Uh, that just kind of blew me away. He said, uh, finally, number four, he said, there are huge problems with evolution that they're starting to admit. Dr. Colin Patterson, who's a senior paleontologist from the British Natural History Museum, he was lecturing at the American Natural History Museum, and they said, we know that, one of the reporters said, we know that uh, evolution is a theory. We keep calling it a theory, but can you give us, you know, here are the facts. You know, here are what we can kind of say, okay, these are the facts. And the man was utterly silent. He said, well, he goes, this much I can tell you. They shouldn't be teaching it in high school. That was his answer to that question. The senior most paleontologist from Britain lecturing in America. And then finally he said, he, he said, you know, take a rock one day. Take a rock. He goes, because earth was water and rock. Some of it molten, some of it hardened. Earth was, according to evolutionists, earth was water and rock for a long time. He goes, really stare at that rock. That rock has carbon atoms in it, which is the same atoms that make up our bodies. He goes, take a good long look with it. He goes, and then convince yourself that dead rock became a living human being just by chance. He goes, you begin to realize it takes a lot more faith to believe in that. He said, you know, all of my atheist astronomer friends laugh at me for believing in the resurrection of Jesus, that, that Jesus could come back from the dead. He goes, I think it is far more far-fetched, and I laugh at them even greater, that they look at a dead rock and think that could be coming a living being. At least Jesus was alive, dead, and then alive again. Life from non-life? You may say, well, well, Tom, why are you going through all this? Is this a biology lesson? Is it a history lesson? It goes back to our one-liner. God is God. God is God, and I am not. And perhaps no one figured this out more than the person whose book is named after him in the Old Testament called Job. Job, Job, Job had a, he, he got dealt a rough hand, right? He was prosperous. He had a wife, kids, family, business, money, wealth. And then through some sort of cosmic contest between God and the devil, the devil is sort of allowed to attack Job's wealth, attack his money, attack his family, and eventually attack his health to where Job has these painful sores all over his body. 
And in the beginning, Job is, is speaking very nobly. But by the end, Job is not, he's never, he never sins. The Bible makes that clear. He never sins, but he just begins to question the plan of God for his life. He begins to question, I know God is God, but maybe God doesn't really love us like we say he loves us, right? Maybe he's not really interested. Maybe he's a little more like a tyrant or a, or a bad emperor or something like that. In fact, if you go to Job chapter 20, you don't have to, I'll be on the screen here. Job chapter 23, verse 13, Job finally concludes this. But God stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. And a lot of that is shared in Job's heart, almost like, you know, I see a little bit of narcissism in God. You know, he just does whatever he pleases. You know, he, he made me wealthy. Now he's made me poor. He gave me kids. Now I have no kids. I had a business. Now I have no business. I was healthy and now I'm sick. He just kind of does whatever he pleases. It's almost shared in that sense of, you know, God is God. Almost with that. And sometimes we can have that same approach to that one-liner. But eventually, God gives Job exactly what he wants, a conversation with him. I know some of you, if you could just give five minutes face-to-face with the muted glory of God, you would, you, there'd be questions. Okay, God, I got questions. You got to answer them quick because if you only got five minutes, do, do, do. God takes some time with Job. But when God shows up, Job is in such awe of his glory that God has to say to Job, Job, brace yourself like a man. Brace yourself. Because Job is kind of, oh, God, you know. And, and God starts, you know what God starts going through? Everything I just went through. He starts going through all of creation. He starts going through life from non-life. He starts going through the creation of water and water droplets and snow. He starts taking Job on a, on a full history and theology lesson of the earth. And then gives Job an exam on it. And Job it fails the exam so miserably that finally, in chapter 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Job went from questioning God's plan, even to some degree maybe questioning God's justice, questioning God's love, questioning God's existence, to being humbled and no longer questioning, but realizing there are things beyond me that I do not know, so it is left to me to trust and obey. Amen? That's where Job finally gets to. He gets to where Paul gets to in Romans 11. Paul says this. Oh, the depths of the, oh, the, oh, the depth of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This is, it is echoing a sentiment from the book of Job here. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I'll tell you what. I have been God's counselor many times over the course of my life. Haven't you? Oh, God, I think you should do this. Oh, God, you should do that. Oh, God, if you just did that. God, if the God, did, I have tried to be God's counselor many times, and I still have days where I think, God, I have better ideas than you do on how to fix this. 
But Paul is saying this as a rhetorical question that is definitely answered in the negative. Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay him? Ooh, what a statement. Who has ever given to God that he should repay him? Some of you may say, Tom, I give God money every week in this church. Remember, ultimately, where all that money came from. Remember where the brain and the body came from to earn that money. The natural resources we used to earn that money. And you'll quickly find we are not owners. We are stewards. He says, for from him and through him and to him. From him, he created. To him, creation's purpose is to glorify God and bring him pleasure and through him and we glorify God and bring him pleasure through his power and his glory working in our lives everything from the food we eat to the air we breathe to the people we love to him be the glory forever amen amen so say it with me God is God and I am not one more time God is God and I am not all right, if you have a discussion sheet, go ahead and flip it over. Don't worry, this won't take long. We're just about done. I just want to leave you with four quick points, and then we will be heading off, hopefully, to celebrate our moms, wives, daughters, whoever we may have plans with today. First thing, and this is, <laughs> I just said it, say it every morning, God is God, and I am not. Every mistake that we make with God is often the mistake of forgetting who God is and who God's not. In fact, one of these times, I remember when I was in seminary, one of the professors asked, what was the first sin? And of course, we're all, you know, raising our hands, you know. We know, we know the, the first sin was when Eve bit the forbidden fruit. He'd always laugh. I hate when professors do that, you know. They want to seem so smart, you know. This one particularly loved to do stuff like this. But he said, nope, that was not the first sin. The first sin happened before people were ever created when an angel called Lucifer, who would become Satan, forgot that God was God and he is not. <laughs> and so the first sin committed in the universe was Satan forgetting that only God was God. If you look at Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, I got it up there. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's Satan rejecting the God as God and I am not and saying, I am God. I will ascend. Notice all the eyes there. I this, I this, I this. You can tell you're forgetting God when you begin using the word I far more than the word you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So first thing for us to really say every morning so that we can receive the peace of having the one who truly is God help us is to be able to say, God, you're God and I'm not and I need your help. Amen? Number two, God doesn't share his position with anybody. God doesn't share his position with anybody. 
the serpent tempted Eve, saying, you will be like God. That's the first temptation. All throughout the Bible, you see the, 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 dev, the same sin the devil did, trying to be God, is the same thing he tries to get us to do. The Egyptians had a, a king called Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was, was amazing. They eventually said, he's a god. And God used the Israelites to, to show him he was not a god. His army was completely destroyed when he tried to take on the people of God. Another king in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel 2, 3, and 4, his name was King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, I feel bad for King Nebuchadnezzar because he didn't necessarily come out and say, I am God. His people did. His people are gathering around him and saying, oh, king, oh, you're so wise. Oh, king, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, king, oh, you're so wealthy. Oh, king, you can have everything you want. Oh, king, anything you say is law. Now, how many of you, if you had thousands of people in a whole region of the earth that did whatever you said, gave you whatever you want, and, and whatever you spoke was divine law, after a while, you would begin to think you're God. Because the people were ascribing him all of that glory and worship. In fact, they built him a 90-foot statue and said, King, you should make a proclamation that everybody has to bow down and worship this 90-foot statue of you. It would have been one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the king says, I'll go with that. Was he saying, I am God. I am cool. I am smart. I am wise. His pride is leading him to destruction. I am awesome. I do get whatever I want. I do get whatever I want in terms of people, in terms of things, in terms of and everything I say does happen. Yeah, that's right. All you, you worship that statue. Well, there were three young boys who said, you're not God. God is God and you are not. And they refused to worship the statue. So the king throws them into a furnace and God meets them in the furnace and saves them. You'd have thought King Nebuchadnezzar would have learned his lesson by then. That day he said it. But then he goes on and he kind of, he's not so sure anymore because he can remember, he's got a whole country of people telling him he's God. So he starts getting a God complex again. You know what God did to him? Drove him insane and he thought he was a donkey, right? Instead of sleeping in his palace bedroom, where did he sleep? Anybody know the story? He slept in his backyard, right? You know? And all those people were scratching their head going, why is he acting like a donkey and an animal sleeping in his? Because God had te- drove him temporarily insane to remind him, you are not God, I am God, and I don't share that position with anybody. It is for your good that I am God. Eventually, in Daniel 3.29, King Nebuchadnezzar says, there is no other God but the Hebrew God. Take it from someone who thought he was God and then got on his knees and bowed to the real God. Number three, rebellion leads to slavery. I don't know where this point came from. (laughs) It just kind of came, you know. You're writing a message. I I think the Lord just wanted this one in here because it almost seems like a digression. But people who rebel against God 
usually tell me they rebel against God because they want to be free. They want their freedom. Freedom to go their own way. Freedom to follow their own desires. Freedom to do what they want. Freedom to say what they want. Freedom to be with anybody they choose and do anything with those people. Ironically, this kind of freedom only leads to slavery. Enslaved to a habit. Enslaved to addiction or addictive behaviors. Or just locked up in our heart with unrelenting shame and guilt. When we finally say, you know what? God is God and I am not what we discover is true peace and true freedom. In John 8, 32, Jesus makes this point clear. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is a big truth, but part of that truth is God is God and I am not. And that is a truth. That will set you free. Finally, number four, rip the big G off of your T-shirt. Perhaps some of us need to say, God, you win. The battle is over. I surrender. Rather than rejecting you and getting angry, I'm going to surrender and worship. I'm going to stop fighting you. Because that God created us was his sovereign choice. That God died for us is an act of his sovereign grace. And that God accepts our worship and our friendship is an example of his sovereign love. I want God to be God. Because I have really realized as young and old as I feel sometimes, I am not and y'all should be thanking God that I am not God. Because I wouldn't be a very good one. I'd probably be a lot like King Nebuchadnezzar in time. I think we all would. Of all the stories I've ever told over my 12 years of being the pastor here, I will admit that one has come back several times as I've talked with many of you. It's the story of the YMCA director in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I told it a few years ago now, but he was, uh, you know, in the heyday of the YMCA was the early 20th century to the mid, but by the end of the 20th century, the YMCA was kind of fading. So here is a man who was a director of a YMCA, but there was no money, still the stress of having to run it, and the, and the man was just falling apart. Stressed, overworked, he had stage two high blood pressure, he was suffering from stomach ulcers and migraines, all symptoms of extreme stress. The guy was heading for an aneurysm, heart attack, easily. Finally, one day, he shut the whole thing down. Shut the YMC down a lot just for a day. Locked it, said no showers today. It used to be a place where you get showers and stuff like that. No showers today. And he went out. He took a long walk in the woods. And he said one sentence to God. One sentence that changes life. He said, God, today I resign as general manager of the universe and I give that job back to you. Today I resign as general manager of the universe. I can't control anything. 
I can't control everything. I got to stop trying. I resign. And I give that job back to you. We talk of miracles. Within three months, blood pressure, normal. Ulcers, cleared up. Migraines, gone. All because he learned our first one-liner, that God is God and we are not. Amen? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Worship team, hold forward. So this morning I ask you, what areas in your life or in your heart where you got to let God be God again? Because only then will we know true peace and true freedom. In response to our message this morning, I'd like you to, if you feel it, if you, you feel led to, pray this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, this morning I declare God is God and I am not. To you be the glory, the honor, and the power forever and ever. Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. I make you my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me of all my sins and all the times I did your job. Fill me with the Holy Spirit that I may submit and praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.